grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, page 853 of your pew Bibles. And we want to continue to work our way through uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And uh, there is a bit of a transition, as we'll see as we come into chapter 6. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word, and we'll look, see what the Lord has to say. Matthew the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's go to the Father. Father, in prayer. Uh, Father, we, we do ask that you would uh, uh, bless us here this morning. We're grateful for your love and your mercy in that uh, despite the weather, we are still able to gather. And Lord, I ask that we do so in spirit and truth and that that uh, we, we are able uh, through your spirit to reach this community. But Lord, what the text we have in front of us uh, that is really convicting, particularly for those of us who have grown up in the church and grown up uh, in, in worship, Lord, uh, may we be obedient to this text. So open our hearts and our minds, our eyes, our ears, uh, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we would be obedient servants of Christ. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I, I have this running theory. It's not really a theory. I, I, I think it's just truth that we humans, on the one hand, are complicated, but really we're not all that complicated. At the end of the day, we all want to be liked. We want to be accepted. We want to be approved of. And really, everything we do is in pursuit of that goal. When we go into work, we want the approval of our boss, and we want to be liked by our coworkers. And, and when we, we come to church, or uh, when we spend time with family, or uh, we, we walk down the street, or how we vote, and what we do, and, and the words we choose to use, and the words we choose not to use, at the end of the day, what our main goal is, is we just want to be lights. Is why we, we find ourselves in, in certain tribes and, and, and we, we, we choose people who look like us, act like us, think like us, vote like us. Is, is really because we, we want to be around people that we like, yes, but really uh, we are the ones that, that want to, to be liked. It's why we only post photos online that are filtered and edited. Social media has really picked up on this sort of idea uh, because you would not take a random photo uh, and then just post it online. You want people to know you, you're a good photographer and you're a good model. So we go out of our way to do that. And in fact, uh, uh, one of the, another reason why we do that is because we know that everyone who looks at these photos is going to probe the background. You're guilty of this, aren't you? If someone takes a photo in their living room, you're going to judge whether or not their living room is messier than yours. Right? We, we do this. We, we, we're so bad with this sort of stuff. Uh, whenever someone posts a picture and that we're in it, maybe it's an old photo, maybe it's a recent photo from an event you went to, what's the first thing you're looking for in that photo? Your eyes just can't take, take, take the glance off. It's yourself. You can be in the background, have nothing to do with that photo, and there you are just looking at yourself. Trying to see if it's a good photo of yourself that you accidentally uh, jumped into. We just want other people to approve of us. This is especially true when it comes to religion. In fact, I think one of the things that attracts people to religion is this deep need we have to be approved. And in religion, what we're pursuing is not just the approval of others. 
It's the approval of God. And that is particularly tempting for us when faith is stripped from uh, grace alone. That is to say that, that, that when we get the gospel wrong, we turn it into legalistic religion. And, and the goal then isn't just to, 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 to uh, uh, receive grace, but rather to, to impress, to, to, to do the things that we think we have to do to get the approval of God. What happens is we turn the gospel into legalism that then feeds our pride. Legalism feeds pride because we convince ourselves that I dress right, I act right, I speak right, I do right. Aren't I a good person? Legalism has fed this from the very beginning. Now, what we see here is Jesus confronts that temptation head on. He shows us in these first four verses how uh, a pride is seen in the achievement of, of charity. In verses 5 to 18, he shows how pride can show itself up in the achievement of spiritual activity. So he begins with prayer, starting in verse 5, and then starting in verse 16, he looks at fasting. That we'll do spiritual things so that people may approve of us, or that even more that God would approve of us. And in this passage, really these 18 verses, Jesus accomplishes two things. One, he shows that religion is the art of fakery, literally play-acting. He also shows why the good news of the gospel really is good news when we practice gospel love. Now, I remember whenever I was a kid, every year we had a Christmas parade like every town does, big and small towns do. And, and I love the Christmas parade because I would get all the candy and stuff. But then you got to meet Santa Claus. I remember that the line, line would be from, from the uh, front of the courthouse and go all the way out on the street, and you would wait forever and ever. And you'd meet Santa Claus, and you would get a bag full of peanuts, an apple, and an orange, That's a, uh, maybe some chocolate. That was it. Everybody got that. And, and uh, uh, my brother wanted the orange, and I wanted the apple, so we traded. And so now I got two apples. He got two oranges. That was a good day. And we would wait forever and ever and ever in that line. And I remember I finally made it up, and I had been rehearsing everything I wanted for Christmas. And then I sat on the lap, and Santa Claus says, little boy, what do you want for Christmas? And I thought, I recognize that voice. And I looked at old Santa there, and I realized, that's my uncle. That's my uncle. And that sort of ruined it, right? Because I know that my uncle is not Santa Claus. Because my uncle lived in Ointon. Now he lives in Frankfurt, actually. Santa Claus lived in the North Pole. This isn't Santa Claus. You're an imposter. You're an actor. And, and Jesus' point here is that when we do things that are outwardly pious but with wrong motivations, we are that sort of actor. Everyone else may buy into the lie that you are this sort of person, but when our heart remains corrupt, the truth will come out. Sometimes piety isn't really piety, it is play-acting. Therefore, sometimes morality isn't really morality, it is play-acting. Sometimes charity isn't really charity, it is play-acting. Sometimes prayer or, or, or spiritual acts aren't really prayer and spiritual acts. They are just play acting. Notice here, uh, first of all, that Jesus starts with the basic, this basic principle there in verse 1. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Here, Jesus is laying out the argument that he will follow for the next 17 verses. And, and the point is, is, is that whether you're giving, whether you're praying, whether you're fasting, or any other outwardly righteous deed, that what matters is the heart. Now, we've been talking about this. In chapter 5, Jesus shows that sin begins in the heart. Your problem isn't adultery, it's lust. Your problem isn't murder or violence, it's hate and anger in your heart. That, that the outside is a manifestation of the inside when it comes to sin. But now what he does is he does the opposite. He shows that righteousness, true righteousness, begins in the heart. And so what good is it if you're generous and everything else, but inside you, you only want to be liked? You just want to be approved. You just want to be perceived in a certain light. Your heart remains corrupt. Outward righteousness, therefore, does not necessarily equal inward righteousness. True righteousness is born out of a motivation to please God, to glorify him, not men. So he'll say here in verses 2 to 4, when you give, do it to please the Lord and not others. When you pray, verses 5 to 15, do it to please the Lord and not others. When you fast or other spiritual deeds, do it to please the Lord and not others. And I would add there, do it not to just please others, but don't do it to please yourself. To walk around and think, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a really nice guy. Boy, my wife really knocked out of the park when she married me. Oftentimes, the person we want to impress the most is ourselves. Jesus says, you, you got to do that. You got to knock that out because that is, that is unrighteous motivation. What we want is righteous motivation. Our actions must be judged by the heart. Think about it. Some of the things that we may judge in general to be wrong aren't always necessarily wrong. Some of the things we may judge to be right uh, are not always necessarily right. For example, let's say that my wife and I are out around town and you see video of me just shoving her as hard as I can. And you come before the church, you come before the deacon and say, you just won't believe this. Our preacher is shoving his wife. His wife ain't but 10 pounds. And he's just launching her onto the sidewalk. What a terrible human being. You don't shove women. And I would say, you are right. But what you may have missed was oncoming traffic. And in shoving my wife, I am I'm saving her, protecting her. So what is outside may be viewed as one thing is in reality something very different. Or consider that of a kiss. A kiss is an outward expression of love and trust. Unless, of course, you have a friend by the name of Judas Iscariot. Who he, he, he greets Jesus, which would have been a common greeting in the first century with a kiss. An outward expression of affection and greeting was really a sign of betrayal. Charity, prayer, and fasting may outwardly look righteous. But unless they are done with the right motivations, they are not. So that leads then finally to, to the application of the text. Here Jesus looks right at the issue of charity, verses 2 to 4. And charity, especially as it relates to helping the poor, is clearly a biblical 
principle. It's a, it's a, it's a biblical commandment. Let me give you just a few examples. This is show I, I didn't make that up. Uh, uh, Leviticus 19, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I'm the Lord your God. So you remember the story of Ruth, right? She, who went out into the uh, wheat fields. Is, is it was ordered, it was uh, by commandment of God that you didn't, you didn't get, gather everything because the poor could then come into your field and gather food for the day. That was an act of welfare that did require some work. Uh, Jesus and his disciples do something like this. They go through the field and they, they pick some of the wheat off. And remember, Jesus is criticized for working on the Sabbath. When Jesus says, you would rather we just starve, okay. All right, and I'm the bad person here? This, this is common. And, and the point was, you're going to have poor among you. Do things to be charitable to them. See to it that they have their bellies filled in, the, in, in, in a place to live. Similarly, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him su sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Notice here that, that even in the Old Testament, the concern is the hearts. That, that, that instead of saying, fine, I'll do it. You remember growing up and your parents made you apologize to your siblings? You remember that? Right? Say you're sorry. Sorry. Right? And, and, and they knew you didn't mean it. They just wanted you to get you in the habit of it. Sometimes it's the way we are with, with generosity. Fine. I'll help you. No, no, no. The Old Testament says, no, no, no. Do it with a generous heart. We get the same thing in the New Testament. I'll give you just one example. I could give you a dozen others. 1 John 3 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words and tongue but with actions and in truth. What does that sound like there? Your outward uh, righteousness is worthless if, if, if it's not inwardly motivated by the gospel that has real practical effects. The inside should affect the outside. So although, uh, uh, well, also, in fact, to give you an example of this, Matthew chapter 2, or chapter 6, verse 2, notice what Jesus says. He says, when you give. Now, I'm, I'm a simpleton from a small town and public, publicly educated, but the word when is not mean the word if. Jesus didn't say, if you want to give, when you give, which implies uh, that you will give. You will give. It is just the natural outwork of the believer to be generous, to be charitable, to give. So although charity is good, Jesus shows in verse 2, it is not necessarily righteous when our heart remains corrupt. A corrupt motivation begins, he says there in verse 2, when we, or verse 1, he had said, when we want to be praised by others. In verse 2, Jesus uses sarcasm to make his point. Look at it there. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Now, we know this is sarcasm because there is no record of people doing this. This is to say that they, they'll come and, and then they got, the, they got a band with them. And they say, okay, uh, local high school marching band, I want you to sound the trumpet and, 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 and play the drums when I tell you. I give the signal because I'm going to give to this poor person right over here. You ready? Three, two, one. All right. We have no example of that. No example of that. Which means what Jesus is doing is exaggerating uh, what would have been common and that people will go out of their way to draw attention to their generosity. We do this today. We often like to do it with large checks. You realize those large checks, you can't take them to the bank 
They're really worthless. And you actually have to take some of the donated money. So if you're doing a fundraiser, but you want to make sure you get the image, you have to take money that was donated to buy the big, large check so that then later behind the scenes, you can write an actual check to, to the people. Right? We, we do the, the, these sort of things all the time. Or we'll say, I will give if you put my name on the front of the building. I'll be very generous. I just want recognition in what it is that, that I do. So I love that Jesus uses sarcasm here because Jesus had a sense of humor. Some of you all may need to be reminded of that. Um, but by this time, however, is, is that it was believed by the uh, Jews that there was a connection between generosity and salvation. Uh, I don't know if any of you all grew up Catholic or are familiar with the Catholic Bible. You'll, you'll notice it's a little thicker than ours, and ours is thick enough. But it has an additional 14 books that we call the Apocrypha, the writings. And those were written during the intertestamental period for the most part. Most of them are in Greek. And among those two books is a book called Tobit and another one called The Wisdom of Sirach. In those books, we don't believe were given to us by God, but the Catholic Church does for, for, for their own reasons. Um, we get an insight into what the Jews believed in the time of Jesus. Let me give you two uh, verses in, in what it is that we are discussing. Um, I may need your help here, Don. My button's not, my button froze. <laughs> um, like my Corolla. Um, well, Tobit chapter 12 verse 8 says, It is better to give to charity than to lay up gold, for charity will save a man from death. Here it is, even, even clearer. It will expiate any sin. That is to say that if you give, it will wash away your sins. In Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 3, verse 30, as water will quench a flaming fire, so charity will atone for sin. Charity will atone for sin. Atonement is the language we use to, to our, of our understanding of Jesus' work on, upon the cross. Now, this is obviously uh, contradicts the gospel, but imagine if you are among the poor in Israel. You can't be as charitable as the rich. So it gave the impression that the more you gave, the, the, the better seat you'd have in heaven. There was a connection between the wealthy and salvation and poor and judgments. You can see why Jesus is very much against this sort of idea. Now, again, this is not a unique situation. What launched the, the, the Reformation of the 16th century was Luther's concern that the Catholic Church told everybody that if you spend enough money, if you buy this piece of paper, you'll get into heaven. Here's Luther's just local pastor and people coming up to him saying, look, Dr. Luther, look, Dr. Luther, I'm saved. I've got a piece of paper. And Luther looks at it and says, what in the world? And he says, look, there's this traveling preacher that says that if I give enough money, I get the piece of paper and, and that I get into heaven. Luther says that you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. So he wrote the 95 Theses, an academic disputation against the Catholic Church. Even now we judge people by the charitable gaming, uh, giving. rather, We don't sound trumpets, um, but, 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 but we do change our profile photo to show just what, what a humanitarian we are. Wow, we want people to believe that we are sympathetic and empathetic. We want the approval of others. Jesus calls those who generous, whose generosity is motivated by the praise of others hypocrites. The word Jesus uses for hypocrites is actor. They are a play actor. 
Uh, it could even be translated an interpreter or one who wears a mask, one who impersonates another. They are actors. In other words, a hypocrite is a play actor. The person you see, like my uncle when he was Santa Claus, is not the real person. And don't be fooled by it. And people who give in search of approval of others or feel like they are a good person because they have given, Jesus says here, they have received their reward. The language there is that of a receipts. In other words, they will not receive an eternal reward, only a fleeting one. Public notoriety is cheap, particularly as a, in lieu of eternity. Now, Jesus says, don't be like that guy. Don't be motivated by that sort of motivation. Be motivated with a righteous heart that seeks in all that you do for the glory of God. And that's his point in verses three through four. But when you give, there's that word when to give, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. This carries the idea of spontaneity. Give uh, uh, spontaneously without the intention of special effort or showing off. You don't say, well, well, you know, I, I was going to give this $20 to, to my favorite grandchild. It's, it's, it's their birthday. But no, 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 no. I'll give it to you because I'm just that nice of a guy. No, no, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Then it's an exaggeration of language. It's a proverbial language. And, and he tells us to give so that only Christ can give you credits. That only Christ can do that. Your reward awaits you. More than that, learn to find the joy in righteous generosity. Your reward is not in the approval of others, but that in Christ you already have the validation of, of God. So if you already have the validation of the divine, you don't need the validation of others. This is why the system doesn't work, because you're looking for something you already possess. Why do we so often fear man more than fear God? And why do we seek the approval of man more than the approval of God? We could just live righteously. We may have noticed that Jesus mentions nothing here about tithes, percentages, and the rest. But when we think of generosity and charity, we often think in terms of religious duty. Or we think in terms of tax write-offs as Americans. If you're looking for tithing information, let me encourage you to turn to the Old Testament. But true charity is motivated by the hearts, and it goes beyond numbers and percentages. In fact, our doctrine of giving, our understanding of giving is not numbers-based. It is based off of the cross. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't merely tithe his heart and his blood? Not enough blood would have covered my sins. But rather, Jesus gave every ounce that he had so that we might be saved. So too, as Christ gave up everything, so we surrender all to Jesus. And this affects us in every aspect of our lives. Here, the example is that of giving. We'll have more to say about it a little in this evening. We have not earned our possessions or our families or our schedules. We are given them. So we must be thankful for them. We will not sacrifice for others any more than he has already sacrificed and given to us. Give so that Christ may be glorified and our reward will be great. Well, I was told a story in seminary, so you know it has to be true, that 
Charles Spurgeon was, without a doubt, probably the best preacher Christianity's ever had. Uh, I'm biased. He's, he's a Baptist preacher in 19th century uh, British England. Um, certainly one of the best preachers that Christianity's ever produced. And, and as such, his, his sermons would be published in newspapers around the world, including the United States. Uh, he's one of the most popular preachers in the United States, and he'd never been here. And his book sold like crazy, and he had all these ministries. He, was, he, he had great notoriety as a preacher. And yet every Sunday, his wife will go around and sell eggs. She'll go around and ask people for money. Would, would, would you like to buy eggs? She'd sell them, go up to someone else. Would you like to buy some eggs? And a lot of people didn't like that. They felt like that given the notoriety of her husband, she should just be generous with her eggs. She should just give her eggs out for free. And she took a lot of heat for that activity. Until after her death and after uh, Dr. Spurgeon's death, it was revealed what she was doing with the money. She quietly was providing for the needs of two widows in the church. And she was doing it through the selling of eggs. So every week she would collect eggs and she would sell them. And she'd use that money and every dime would go to help these two poor widows. Funny, isn't it? I think she understood it better than, than anyone. See, if you're not looking for the validation of others, you won't fear the disapproval of others. Because she knew God was pleased with her generosity. So too, when we give, when we are charitable, let us do so with pure hearts. Because in Christ, you are already validated. Enough so that he would die for you. And he would love you with an unshakable love. You already have the very thing that you are looking for. Therefore, give. And give with abandonment. Give with radical generosity. Not so that people may praise you, but they may praise and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be kind to us that we would...